Welcome back to Two Nobodies, everyone. We're Patrick's here again. I've been really curious about this next topic. I've been curious about what is going on in the airline industry. What's happening at airports? What's happening with the shortage of pilots? It seems like you hear so many things happening. There's a lot of disruption going on, technological innovation. I got a really cool guest for you guys. Captain Gary Russell is joining us. He's the former MEC chairman of the Air Canada Pilots Association. He's been flying since 1997, 25 years. Um, Gary, thanks for joining us on Two Nova Base today. Really appreciate ha- appreciate having you. Thanks so much for the invite. I'm excited to uh, chat with you about all things uh, flying and uh, labor. Awesome. 25 years. That's a long time. It, it Well, we were just talking about it and it didn't yeah. register with me that it's been that long. Yeah, but I, I started flying right out of high school um, here on the West Coast. And so, yeah, it has been since 97. And, and I mean, we can talk more about the different uh, jobs, flying jobs that I've had. Mm. But uh, yeah, I was looking back through some photos in my logbook, getting ready for this show together. So um, yeah, some some long forgotten memories of, of the jobs that I've had currently with Air Canada, but uh, I was a bush pilot. Previous to that, I'd done some work uh, overseas for a Canadian company. We had we were contracted to the US uh, military. Uh, I was a flight instructor for many years uh, when I was finishing my um, my undergrad. So, yeah, I've definitely had some different uh, different jobs, but currently flying with Air Canada, uh, flying the 737 uh, Max uh, aircraft, and mm-hmm. mostly north south uh, to California, and then also over the Pacific to the Hawaiian Islands is sort of my main routes. Oh, that's that sounds pretty sweet. Twenty five years does that is that considered a long time these days? Because it's you hear on the news that more and more pilots are hitting that you know those long years, thirty years, thirty five years because of shortage. But just out of context, is twenty five years a pretty long time or not so much anymore? So for our profession, um, depending on when you start, I mean, that's uh, that's about halfway or a little bit more over halfway through your career. If you start mm-hmm. in the Air Force or start right out of high school, um, you know, you could we've got pilots retiring 35, 40 years, sometimes wow. more. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it has traditionally been a, a long term tenured profession, although, you know, we're seeing things change so quickly that that also could change. Um, we do have a very senior core of of captains that are retiring at Air Canada certainly and WestJet mm-hmm. and other airlines are going to start seeing that in the coming years as well as their as their um, pilot groups get more senior does this uh, does this worry you right now uh, I think it does um, I know as a union leader we were tracking the age and experience levels of our crews very closely because mm-hmm. Um, you know, making arguments with the employer with Air Canada to say, you know, you, you've got to be aware of this, you know, coming uh, crisis or shortage, um, you know, planning for that and attracting the right talent. You know, you have to have certain features to your collective agreements, to your contracts to attract the, the right kind of talent. And yeah. certainly at our, our level, at the airline level, we want lots of experience. It helps if you've flown a jet before. Uh, been part of a multi uh, multi crew cockpit before, so th- these are all things that 
we thought about as the pilots association. And, and I know that the airline having dealt with Air Canada senior management quite a bit, they are thinking, you, you know, ahead and they recognize that um, the shortage of pilots and workers in general in aviation is, is, is complex because it's not mm -hmm. just sort of, oh, there's a shortage. Um, you know, the shortage has manifests itself differently at different carriers and in different um, job descriptions. So, so, we, so tell me about what you say. It's really complex. Like I imagine it's, it's just not easy to just find a pilot out of nowhere. Like there's a lot of training that goes involved. I imagine that's right. like maybe walk people through what it takes to even get to like a commercial level flying, I guess. So I can, I can describe sort of my pathway, but there's, there's a number of different pathways. Okay. So someone like myself, um, you know, in, in high school, um, I had a neighbor who was already flying a few years ahead of me. And so he, he had given me some coaching on here, here was the path that I followed. So mm -hmm. he graduated high school, had applied to a, a university program. Uh, it happened to be university of the Fraser Valley at the time had, and, and they still do, but BCIT and other schools in Western Canada and, and across the country have these organized, um, degree or diploma programs where a, uh, a young aspiring pilot can come out of school. Um, they can get an undergrad or a diploma and then they'll, they'll do flying at the same time. So that, that was the pathway I, I took, um, that took about five years because I started, uh, instructing at the school mm. as I was finishing my degree. Um, once that, once I, I graduated and I had about 1500 hours of, of instructional time, um, and this was sort of in the, in the, um, nine 11 era. So, mm. you know, the jobs were tight. The industry was in crisis as it tends to be every few years. Mm. Um, you know, took a, a Bush flying job up in Wabasca, uh, Northern Alberta. So end okay. of highway two, if you're familiar with the yeah, area. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I flew up there for a season, uh, got a little bit more experience on some higher performance aircraft, some multi-engine aircraft, some multi-crew aircraft. Um, and, and then joined, a, a company down in Calgary called Ken Boric air. And they're, they're a contract company for many other, um, uh, institutions. They have a contract with, um, the Antarctic survey. So we had aircraft down on the South pole. Um, we, the contract I was on was with the U S Navy. So we were doing survey work overseas and, mm. um, all over the U S. And so we had a number of um, air ambulance con contracts as well up in the in the Arctic. So mm. that was really the place where I got um, the kind of experience that the airlines were looking for. Um, so that that stint was probably, you know, including the instruction about seven or eight years before I had the experience and the time to mm. be attractive to Air Canada or WestJet or, or Jazz Aviation, any of those mm. sort of bigger carriers in Canada. Um, so, you know, late twenties, early thirties is where most of the, the pilots find themselves age wise and traditionally, you know, three, 4,000 hours, some post or some, you know, mm. post-secondary education as well. Uh, that's what Air Canada has traditionally looked for. Um, that that's one path, sort of the civilian path. We have mm. a whole group of pilots that have, have gone through the military, have flown transport fighters, mm. helicopters, and they've gone through um, the military route, which is its own, you know, unique uh, pathway mm -hmm. to to the airlines. 
And then we have a lot of, of uh, pilots that come to us that uh, that have flown overseas for Cathay Pacific or Emirates. Um, they may have mm. got their start in Canada, but then left the country. And now we're seeing a lot of them come back, especially after COVID. Um, companies like Cathay Pacific, um, you know, just terminated their contract with expat pilots. And oh, so a lot of okay. a lot of those folks are coming back to us at Air Canada, you know, later in their careers. They bring a lot of talent and experience, but some of my first officers, you know, I'm, I'm in my mid forties, they might be mid to late fifties, uh, coming back with, with, you know, a lot of experience, senior, um, overseas commanders that have, have mm. got experience on some of the largest aircraft anywhere mm. are choosing to come back to Air Canada and WestJet and, and other airlines in Canada just to, uh, you know, return home. Basically. That sounds like a positive, Hey, for the, at least for the major carriers here in Canada. I think it's a positive. It's a positive, certainly in the flight deck, because you you are um, really plug and play. These people are so experienced and, um, and and are bringing so much talent to the table. I think it's a bit of a band aid solution for a company like Air Canada. You know, they're able to put these folks into a, a high performance triple seven or a seven eighty seven, and really not worry about you know is is you know is the experience in the background. Yeah. There. So that that pool of overseas talent is going to dry up. Um, it's not it's not uh, you know an infinite pool of of mm. that type of pilot. So we're also going to see the airlines starting to re, you know recruit from the north, recruit from the military. But those pools of pilots, we we are seeing the experience level dry up, and and the hours and the age of those pilots um, drop. Mm. So pilots I, coming to the airlines are starting to be, be more um, in the sort of 2000 hour range, yeah, a yeah. little bit less experience. That's still significant for, for uh, you know, any commercial pilot. Uh, that's a good, a good foundation. It's probably the type of hours too, I would imagine. Right? Absolutely. That matter. Yeah. 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 So, you know, if someone's got 2000 hours um, uh, of, you know, making decisions and flying in tough weather and mm -hmm. facing icing mm -hmm. on, you know, BC's got some of the most challenging terrain anywhere. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, a pilot flying for a small regional carrier in BC is, is bringing a lot of really, um, you know, uh, good experience to the table. Yeah. You said you, uh, one of your routes is to, um, to Hawaii, which Island do you fly to? So, um, we, we do Kona, Maui and Honolulu. Okay. Um, and more often than not, uh, I'm, I'm finding that I'm, I'm getting assigned the Maui route. Yeah. Um, although I, I am off to, uh, to Honolulu at the end of the month. So we, mm. we are able to, to, you know, request certain routes or certain flying based on your, your seniority level. Mm. Um, so if, you know, if there's a, a destination that you really like, you know, you can mm. put it on your, your ask list and the computer yeah. will you know, crunch the, uh, crunch the numbers and assign you a trip based on what's available at your, at your seniority level when it gets to your name. So yeah, the Hawaiian islands, definitely, uh, uh, a lovely layover. It's, mm. um, the tough part is the red eye home. So we, mm. we depart the islands, you know, around 11 PM. Yeah. Um, and, and we're back into Vancouver around seven in the morning. So it's, it's definitely a little bit, you know, you have to do some preparation to be well rested for those mm. flights. So we can get some sunshine and some sand in the morning, but it, we're pretty disciplined about, you know, lights out early afternoon, 
to, to make sure we get some sleep before we hit the, uh, uh, the runway. I did that, uh, red eye with my family last year. We flew into Maui through WestJet, but, um, but, uh, the talking about the regional carriers, like we flew from Maui to Molokai using one of the, the small little nine seater right. planes. Yeah. Those guys know how to fly. Like they, oh, yeah. like it was a windy day and I was like, just thinking about, okay, where are we going to land in the ocean here? But like, we were talking to somebody later and, uh, she was a supervisor for the airline and we were like, that was a scary flight. And she just laughed at us. She's like, those folks know how to fly. Like they oh, yeah. are so experienced. And she's like, their record is impeccable. And, um, so when you talk about like the regional airlines and heavy t- different terrains and they have incredible amounts of experience, hey. Eh? And that, and that's, I think you're starting to sort of scratch the surface of when you, we talk about a pilot shortage, that's really where, uh, I think in Canada, but other jurisdictions as well, that's where there's the, the most concern today is mm. that air service to these smaller communities is really under pressure. Most pilots want a, you know, uh, very, uh, like, like any profession, you, you want a mm. set career path. You want to know, mm-hmm. okay, here's where all my efforts are leading. Mm. Just the way that the the industry is, the airlines tend to be where um, most pilots have their sights set, uh, just because of the compensation and the and the contracts that that are at the major airlines and and the job security. Mm. Uh, a lot of the smaller airlines don't they, they can't offer the same type of job security or or mm. wages in some cases that the, the larger airlines have traditionally been able to offer. Um, which means that if you're in the north in Nunavut or uh, the Yukon, even mm-hmm. northern Alberta and BC, uh, it's it's becoming harder for small companies to retain their experienced pilots. And and that you said it yourself, because they're flying into such challenging runways, uh, that's where I think the most pressure is is we're seeing right now. Mm. Um, although it's starting to trickle up into the, into our regional feeders like jazz aviation, who does mm. the regional feed for air Canada, they're finding it difficult to find, you know, the experience that they're looking for, um, uh, on the would dash that, eight in the smaller aircraft. Would that end up lowering? Like, I don't know if this is the case. I imagine there are probably federal standards for flying. Okay. And yep. then are, do does each carrier have their own set of standards? That's right. So to get a commercial license, you know, we could, uh, if if I, you know, reins, reins, revalidated my instructor rating, we could go out and, and I could teach you how to be a private pilot in around 45 mm. hours. And then you you do some additional training up to about 200 hours to get your commercial license. That means you've got the ticket to go work for money and, and you could be, you know, flying a, a light single or be, a, you know, a co-pilot on a larger aircraft. Mm. To get to the airlines, there's a, there's a, the next tier up is around 1500 hours, sorry, 1500 hours of experience. You'd, you'd be looking at your airline transport license. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> that means that um, you could fly a transport category aircraft like a 737 or a 777, mm-hmm. uh, the larger Airbuses. So the airlines are looking for that um, license. Um, Air Canada has additional requirements so that, you know, most of the folks that are coming um, have much more experience than just the 1500 hours mm. that's that's been traditional four or mm. five thousand hours historically although we're seeing those numbers drop mm. um so you know the, just because you have the license doesn't mean the airlines are going to necessarily take you uh but that's where we're starting to see some pressure certainly at jazz again that's our mm. regional feeder 
um, they're they're having to take people right out of school. So in some cases, mm -hmm. they're you know just taking someone with a commercial license, putting them through their own training program, which is very rigorous, and it takes months for a pilot to arrive at, at Jazz um, and and be checked out on a Dash Eight or a regional mm -hmm. jet. Um, that's a significant hurdle for them to to clear, but they can they can take a college graduate and put them through that program, and mm. they'll be flying uh, you know passengers our passengers around the system. What's your perspective on just these lower uh, budget carriers that are popping up you know everywhere? Um, like in terms of from a pilot's perspective, like we're flying to Toronto next week on on. Uh, you know, uh, uh, not Air Canada, not WestJet, but That's another okay. another carrier. We can still be friends. <laughs> okay, good. All right. I remember uh, being in, I, mean, I remember this... being in an Air Canada uh, in a, uh, on an Air Canada flight, and I flashed my WestJet Mastercard, and they're like, "Oh, we don't take that over here." That's oh, okay. Yeah. Well, look, I, you know what? We, I've got so many colleagues and and close friends that work at WestJet, and they work at Flair and Sunwing and yeah. all all of yeah. the carriers. I think that's the benefit of of the Canadian pilot group is um, there there is a high level of experience at every single carrier, whether it's Air mm. Canada or, uh, you know, a quote unquote budget carrier or a leisure mm. carrier like Sunwing, mm. they mm. have top talent there as well. They've, they mm. have um, done very well to try and raise their, certainly their wages to match ours, their, mm. their contract, you know, you could argue um, our contract is, is better. Our airline is bigger and, and maybe more stable, but, um, the leisure carriers and Air Transat out of Quebec is, is sort of a beloved leisure carrier, mm -hmm. um, you know, out of that province, they have long serving tenured pilots that, you know, will, will work a full 20, 30 plus years there. Mm -hmm. So I don't think you have to worry about, um, you know, the safety dimension mm -hmm. when you, when you look at those carriers, I would say, um, it's it's hard because we're a small market so you've got air canada westjet and then you've got these other players that mm. puts a lot of pressure on on all of the you know the airlines to to compete which is good for prices um not always good for passengers like you saw i think sunwing ended up canceling some flights mm. unannounced um we've seen it before if you remember jetsco collapse and left passengers jetsco. stranded i don't know yeah that, that was airline. maybe uh it was probably 10 or 15 years ago now, okay. but we, we don't like to see, you know, as a profession, we don't like to see airlines uh, that are, that are not stable, that are not delivering, you know, their passengers as promised. So yeah. that's the risk. I think, I don't think it's a safety risk, um, but commercially it's, it's, I know it frustrates Air Canada leadership uh, mm. on the corporate side. Um you know, you want stable competitors. WestJet and Transat are very stable. Mm. Um, and they're actually in the process of buying WestJets in the process of, of taking over uh, Sunwing at this point. Mm. Okay. But there's some other players out there that are emerging. Lynx um, is one, Jetlines is another that are, are mm. bringing, you know, some pressure on, on Air Canada to lower prices and compete more, which is, which is good in the short term. Is this, so you're saying it's a good thing. Like does Air, do you think Air Canada, WestJet, do they have to, maybe shift their like their business model a little bit or what do you think that I, looks I think like they do forward? yeah and I, and I mean there's always a balance I think to say it's just good or bad you know if it if it means that we're you know we're competing in new markets that's great that means new routes um, 
definitely mm-hmm. if, if the airline's forced to offer lower prices and that that has a negative impact on uh, you know their ability to pay higher wages that's not a good thing for pilots right. Right. we don't necessarily see it in that way i think you know we've had a leisure brand for a long time rouge that we've shown um, at least from the professional side the pilot side that look it, it doesn't matter what's happening behind that bulletproof door whether it's a mm. leisure product like rouge or a more traditional legacy product like air canada um, you know you, you should be paying your professionals the same way up front because we're we really don't operate uh, a leisure brand 737 mm. any differently than we mm. would a mainline um, mm. so you know it's not always an argument that lands with the airlines but i think we are starting to see the trend because of the shortage of pilots or, or at least pressure on, on airlines to attract talent that, you know, even if you're working for a leisure carrier, it's still a good job at a, at a, a professional level wage. Yeah. What, uh, what happened this, like these last few months, last six months with the, you know, congestion at the airports, luggage, all these things that you see that people are experiencing from a, from a passenger standpoint, like what, what is really happening and what's, yeah. what's the problem? I, it's a good question. I, again, like I, I, there's a great cartoon and I can't remember where I saw it, but it's sort of the two paths, um, of, of why things are the way they are. And, mm. and it's, you know, uh, there's an easy answer, which is wrong, which is just the airline screwed up and okay. it's typical Air Canada or the complex answer, which is correct, which is um, the aviation system or the air transport system is is a just in time model. So, you know, what does you that look mean? At us, well, like Starbucks, if you go to Starbucks for a coffee, you know, yeah. there's a barista there and they're going to make your order. But yeah. they've got the, you know, the the baked goods there, they've got the coffee beans that have come and they've got mm. sort of a supply of product in the store ready for you to, uh, to have. And maybe there's a bit of a lineup, but you know, there, there's stock there. There's, yeah. um, there's a buffer in aviation. We, we don't, um, in delivering the service, we don't necessarily have a, a huge amount of buffer. Um, so the example would be, you know, you arrive at the airport, everything's got to be delivered in time. So even if you give yourself a couple hours or, you know, now people are arriving four hours before a flight, which just seems crazy, but mm-hmm. everything's got to work perfectly for you to get on that airplane and push back for Hawaii on time. So you arrive mm-hmm. at the airport, maybe there's someone that takes your bag at the gate, but more likely you show up at the ticket ticket counter. So there's got to be enough agents there to, mm-hmm. you know, process your baggage, get it on the conveyor belt. You're going to go through security. So there's got to be enough security folks there to keep that line moving. You know, mm-hmm. you get into the terminal. We've got to make sure that, you know, the, the, there's a sufficient amount of gates at the, the terminal for the aircraft that are, you know, coming in, mm-hmm. ramp crew, air traffic controllers, maintenance personnel on the ground. If there's mm-hmm. any issues with the aircraft, obviously flight crew and flight attendants, they have to be in position, ready to go. So if any one of those bottlenecks has just even a, a tiny shortage, that line, you know, if you don't get through the security line or you don't get your aircraft maintained mm-hmm. or you don't get that baggage on board, it doesn't matter if there's a pilot shortage. I mean, we might have a, plenty of pilots mm-hmm. but because there's a customs agent that didn't show up that day or they, you know, they're recruiting for a position in Vancouver that could delay you getting off the gate by 
hours or days. So it's just tight days. at every single point in the process. Is is it, there's it, very it could be buffer. tight at one of those points, and it's still going to have this knock-on effect. So what we yeah. are seeing a lot in in Pearson out in Toronto is is and not to put this on border security, but we have heard you know that um, CBSA has had difficulty recruiting. And so we can't get you through. It doesn't matter if we've got enough maintenance personnel and, and gate agents and gates and aircraft and pilots. Mm. If you can't get through customs on time, you're not going to mm. make your flight and, mm. and or the flight's going to be delayed waiting. So mm. it's it's because we're trying to deliver all those products at the same time at the airport in a, you know, what's been, I don't think anybody expected this kind of recovery at this pace, mm. this this concept of sort of revenge travel or pent-up travel demand <laughs> nobody knew that was a thing mm. um, you know i was i was chairing our association during covid and and we were uh you know walking through empty airports for over a year yeah and and just couldn't imagine that it would be uh, quote unquote back to normal so quickly mm. so um a lot of the jobs that we're seeing those bottlenecks in our, our sort of lower paid um, positions that people have, have said, well, I'm going to work from, I want, I want to work from home. You know, yeah. I got a taste for this. I don't want to be at the airport, yeah. you know, patting people down, looking <laughs> for, you know, water bottles in their luggage. I can, right. I can be, I can be doing some other job from the comfort of my home or at least be doing sort of partially remote work. That's really pulled people away from the aviation sector where you have to be mm. physically either on board an aircraft or at an airport. You kind of already get into the pandemic. What was it like flying during the pandemic? It was bizarre. Yeah. I don't think I've ever, you know, there was a part of it that was sort of wondrous. Like, uh, you know, at the time I was on a different fleet. I was on the Dreamliner, the 787. Mm. So we, you know, we did the last flight out of Taipei. I did one mm. of the last flights out of Beijing. Um, and these are, you know, monumentous airports, monumental airports, they're huge, mm. they're, um, you know, and they're empty, they're not not even one person, I've got some wow. pictures going through Sydney, and they had to kind of unlock the terminal for us to actually get in. So we pulled up in the crew van. And at the time, we weren't flying passengers, we were just really flying mostly cargo mm. around the system, PPEs and, and um, various other, you know, time sensitive goods. So we were doing, uh, you know, four pilots uh, on a 300 passenger airplane, Vancouver, Sydney, fly over to Auckland and back mm. to Vancouver. And it would be everything from, you know, medical equipment to zoo animals to uh, <laughs> foodstuffs. You know, we, we, we had some interesting cargo, but, but when you go into the airport, it was like a museum, yeah. you know, a museum of a, a past age kind of thing. So when you when you see those gigantic airports with with nobody in them and you're the only people walking around and you and a security guard that's had to unlock the terminal to let you in <laughs> that that's a it's a it's unsettling yeah uh, i think it's it, it you know you've talked listening to some of your other podcasts you sort of talk about the state of capitalism and sort of mm -hmm. capitalism in crisis that that is really sort of the jarring part of a, a an event like COVID where it can just grind the gears uh, of, of uh, the economy to a standstill so quickly. Were you worried about the airline industry at that point? Oh yeah. I don't think any of us knew what was going to happen. So 
you know, my wife and I, we owned a business at the time that had also had to shut its doors. We own, you know, we owned a yoga studio on, on one of the smaller islands around Vancouver here. So we shut down that business. Um, wow. you know, I was flying reduced hours. Luckily we, you know, we had some, you know, some savings and, and the airline took care of us, uh, very well as far as, you know, keeping us on, on payroll, mm. um, some of our pilots, about 600 of them, weren't so lucky. Um, and even despite, you know, the the fact that the government had uh, made funds available uh, through queues and some of the other vehicles, we had some young pilots that, that were had to find other work. And that was mm. something that they're still trying to recover from. And, and mm. you know, they've lost years of service and, and other things. So they, they had a much different experience. But for, for my, our family, it was, you know, tightened our belts and and um, we didn't travel. We loved to travel, but we didn't travel for those years. Obviously, mm. nobody did. Um, and and just sort of stayed close to home and 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 watched the you know watched our budget a little bit tighter um, or, or a little bit closer. So I, I think our experience was was pretty um, it was pretty good, all things considered. We saw pilots and flight attendants have to totally rethink their life. They lost their homes. They they had a miserable time during COVID, yeah. and that's that's the tough part. When I fly with some of my co-pilots, you know, it, we talk a lot about you know when we're on cruise and and we don't have our phones out there, we don't mm. have Wi-Fi on board the aircraft. So mm. you have to talk about each other's lives, and there, there's yeah. some tough stories out there. Um, a lot of the the pilots that were single or didn't have you know, didn't have family at home, um, they really had to reach out and build a bubble. Um, some of them took other jobs either because they just needed something to do or, mm. or they were laid off and, and really had to make ends meet. So some of them were quite creative. We had pilots start businesses during COVID, um, lost aviator coffee, I think is one of them. Um, but there's, there's many others that, you know, get creative start yeah. a business or, or, you know, we even had, uh, you know, professional pilots with thousands of hours experience and, and, um, you know, on their way to, to a tenure track with Air Canada, they had to go work at Starbucks as no. baristas or, yeah. you know, um, uh, go work in the, as Uber drivers, or, uh, we had a lot of folks, uh, take up, you know, um, skip the dishes, that kind of thing to, to yeah. make ends meet. Oh man. Um, would, would you say that flying is, I know you said, well, you fly with crews and you get to know people like you need to get to know your, your, your co-pilots and such and the crews, but is it a lonely job? Uh, can it be a lonely I, job? It can be. I think COVID was extremely lonely. We were, we were in many cases in our whole hotel room and we were, you know, locked in our hotel room. Yeah. So if you're flying into anywhere in Asia, it was locked down. They've just sort of lifted that uh, mm -hmm. restriction in, in Hong Kong. So we're back into Hong Kong. We can move about the city, which is great. Um, being stuck in a hotel room for 50 hours is, it may sound great, uh, but it's pretty miserable. Yeah. Um, so that, that was a, a very tough couple of years for our crews, whether you were laid off or, or flying the line because you couldn't go out. So that part can be lonely. I think, you know, mm. when you're flying with a, a crew out to Hawaii or to California these days, it's, it's, it's not, if you're willing to have a conversation and, and connect with someone, 
you know, some folks are less chatty than others mm. on board, um, but we we have a flow every every ten minutes. There's there's a, a sequence of checklists and and um, you know, navigational uh, duties that we have to do. So if you're not chatting, we, we can't have personal conversations below a certain altitude. Mm. So um, anytime we're we're out of cruise in a descent or in a climb. We're approaching an airport we don't have uh, personal There's conversations no, yeah, it's yeah. it's operational only but but when we're on cruise between those navigation checkpoints you know mm. a lot of us do talk about our personal lives and our families and that's a way to sort of stay engaged and and um and pass those minutes uh you know it can be pretty dark and quiet over the pacific in the middle of the night so mm. um yeah it's good if you have someone you connect with is it is it because um, I imagine you're typically the first officer on your flights? So I'm the captain on on this current flight. So the first officer we we use that term interchangeably with co-pilots. So the okay, aircraft commander okay. or the captain sits in the left seat. Um, okay. They're responsible in the end for the decisions that are made on board the aircraft. But we really can't. I can't operate without a first officer. Okay, my apologies. I confuse I confuse the term. So, as a captain, would you do you find yourself typically leading the conversations? Like, is there so, kind of a rank sort of thing there, there or there was it dynamic? Be a little bit. I, it's also an age thing. You know, a lot of my first officers are in their you know late twenties, early thirties. So, th- there's a there's a bit of that dynamic. Although I would mention, you know, we have many senior pilots coming from overseas. So sometimes I'm flying with mm. someone who's, who's a lot more experienced than I am. So, you know, there's, there's definitely different dynamics, seniority or your rank. Um, once you get up in the air and, and your the ties are off, uh, it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty casual as far as conversation goes. And then we switch back into professional mode once we, you know, are approaching a waypoint or there's a fuel check or a navigation check that has to be completed. So we're, we're able to flip in and out pretty quickly. Obviously, when we leave the cockpit, it's it's we want to project that professional uh, appearance and demeanor. Um, so you know, hats on, ties on, that kind of thing. Yeah, we don't we don't bring that personal conversation outside of the flight deck. Yeah, um, mental health of of pilots these days. How would you? Is there any way of generalizing that, or how would you how would you describe that these days? I think for- we, yeah. So mental health, we. Uh, we're responsible for fitness to fly. That's a big part of our license and mental health is, is Mm. part of that now. So we have to, you know, be mindful of our, our physical health. So uh, every year we go to see our flight surgeon or our Mm. Air Canada doctor, and they would look at everything from cholesterol levels to your, you know, heart health. Mm. Um, They track all that very closely and and now we also talk about mental health during that mm-hmm. visit. So we yeah we do have to think about that. Um, do you, are you showing up to work ready to, you know, fly a fourteen hour flight with three other people or a ten hour flight with another pilot? Um, you do you do have to make sure that your mind is there. And and I think like any profession. Um, Air Canada and when I was at the association, we, we give our pilots a lot of tools to make sure they're mm. in sort of peak, uh, peak physical and mental health. So we have, as pilots, a volunteer program called P2P. So if there's ever a question about a mental health issue or uh, a family issue or getting any kind of support, um, we have a, a, a peer-to-peer network. So it's other yeah. pilots that they've got 
all of the tools at their disposal and they can make sure that everybody's supported. Um, so we take it really seriously. And if there's any um, sort of question about physical or mental health, we don't go to work. That's just, there's no, um, that's just a standard. Uh, no, that you guys, yeah. It's just a standard. It's how we've been able to maintain the system safety. Mm. Um, it's part of just culture, we call it. And, mm. and the safety system relies on, on just culture for flight crews to mm. maintain that safety system. So you could have procedures, you can have, you know, automation, you can have all these different layers of protection but a just culture work environment where there's no punitive, there's no, uh, uh, it's a non-punitive issue. If you, you know, all I do is call our scheduling line and say, you know, I'm booking off tomorrow and it could be for a cold. It could be mm -hmm. for any kind of fit to fly issue. And then That's we just call so, in when we're back. Yeah. Cause that was, that was my next question is just, um, uh, yeah, there doesn't sound like there's any, pressure i guess right to fly if you're if you're there's a, a health issue or whatever because I, I mean that's a cost to the airline right like that could impact logistics i would imagine right. and all kinds of things you always you already said that it's tight at every point and so now all of a sudden right. it's like someone's feeling not so good mentally or whatever and they're saying i'm not coming in tomorrow like there's not pressure from the airlines you're saying to... so not in canada i mean canada is um, Canadian airlines use safety management systems and, and part of that SMS system is, is mm. that just culture, that safety system that, that, um, it really demands that pilots and flight attendants, um, self monitor for any health mm. issue. And I think the, the flip side of that coin is if there's a, if there's a hull loss or, a, you know, heaven forbid a crash, mm. um, that that's far more costly uh, mm. by many orders of magnitude yeah. than, you know, canceling a flight or delaying a flight because we need to replace the crew. We also at Air Canada, you know, we have reserve crews. So there's standby mm. crews on in Vancouver that if anybody has to uh, book off work, they're, they're ready to, you know, come and crew the flight. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the system's built for that. Mm. Now, it's not to say that if there's not pressure on the system, if everybody happens mm. to get, you know, a bad round of COVID yeah. um, or it reemerges and there's there's more book offs, which certainly we did see as things were recovering. We also saw people were still, you know, st still suffering from Omicron or some of the more mm. virulent versions. Mm. Yeah, book offs were were definitely higher. Yeah. How do you feel about um, recently on on Netflix? Anyways, there was that MH three seventy documentary. I watched and, that. Yeah. yeah. And how, how did you feel about that? I mean, like, there was a lot of focus on the pilot and such, and yep. and like, does that seem realistic to you, or any thoughts about uh, what happened there? I, you know, that that show which I did see, and I had talked with some colleagues at, at work about it. Um, you know, the, the way that it was presented was, was definitely seemed a little bit like entertainment. I think they mm. had some, you know, they, they definitely tried to cover the facts and they brought in some journalists and some, uh, um, some other sort of credible voices. You know, I, I can't speculate on what happened to that aircraft, that airplane. Mm. It was, you know, it was a massive disaster and then followed right on, you know, a short time later by the one that was uh, downed over the Ukraine. Mm, um, yeah. So a big mystery. 
um, it's hard to it's hard to sort of piece together what happened. I mean, they presented some uh, they sort of it was a little bit more conjecture than maybe I was ready for in that mm. in that four part series. Yeah. But they they sort of presented some here's what could have happened as a as a pilot. Um, just knowing how the aviation system works. Uh, often it's the sort of the least salacious thing that, or the least, you know, interesting thing that, <laughs> that is usually like, you know, if they, if they had an issue and, and that's where they lost, you know, contact with the crew on, on radar. And we also have, you know, we have other systems that track the aircraft, you know, I think it, they lost um, contact and, and lost the signal somewhere north of the departure air, airport. Mm. Um they, they, there was some suggestion that maybe there was wreckage out in the water there. Mm. Um, as a pilot, that that's sort of my first thought is if if dispatch and air traffic control uh, lose you at a position, that's probably where you you know where mm. the wreckage would be if you, if you lost an aircraft. Um, all these stories of them, you know, navigating around different yeah. military airspace and ending up in mainland you know, North Russia Kazakhstan somewhere, or Kazakhstan, <laughs> or then going down towards the, the, you know, the South pole, that's, that's less likely, I think. Um, so you're a, saying, so, a, so, so as a, like, cause that's where most of the search took place, right? Is in the South yeah. Indian ocean. And yeah. so, so you're, uh, I don't want to get too much into this, I get, but, um, but, uh, as a pilot, like when those signals got lost, like how is that, how is that possible? Like on a modern aircraft, like what would it take for that to happen? I mean, it would be a catastrophic failure, a fire or, or, you know, okay. uh, you look at other incidents where there was, where aircraft crashed, they were lost over the, uh, over the ocean air France as, as an example, you know, if you hit, um, extreme turbulence, which is very unlikely. We have all kinds of systems on board now and, mm. and weather forecasting that we avoid those areas. Um, Swiss air, as an example, was a systems failure that led to a fire that would have been a, a scenario where you would have fallen off the, the screen, so to say. Um, mm. But there's, there's so much surveillance out there now in the form of satellite um, ADSB, which is a, a system that communicates with the ground without radar, um, radar systems, both civilian and military, you know, o over the ocean. Yeah. There's not, there's not that many eyes on you, but we're still communicating with our company all the time, uh, mm. through satellites all the way across the ocean. So to, you know, to, to be lost in the way that they're claiming that the aircraft, you know, dropped off, um, communications at a certain point and then ended up so many hundreds or thousands of miles away uh as a as a professional pilot um it's it's very hard to believe well, it's not impossible anything's possible but mm. looking at it with my sort of pilot hat on um uh, i would say you know look for the more, more likely explanation which is yeah. some kind of catastrophic some kind of catastrophic failure um I think the tough part with that story is there's these sort of other little bits of information mm -hmm. that don't line up with, with just mm -hmm. a failure over the, the ocean and the, the airplane went down. Yeah. If, if, if you're in like, if the scenario happens where you do lose all communication, there's that cash rock failure. What, what, what's your next step as a pilot? 
Well, I mean, so there's, keep in mind, like there's layers of communication. So we, we have radios on board. So at any mm. moment we can reach out to another aircraft. Like let's say we're headed to Hawaii mm. um, and we're midway there. We can talk to other aircraft and there's, there's always dozens of other aircraft in our mm. area. So we can reach out to United or American or Lufthansa or whoever happens mm. to be in the area at the time and have a conversation with another crew and they can relay, hey, there's something going on here. Mm. Um, we need some help. So that's, that's one way. Um, we have a satellite phone on board. Any airplane mm. that's flying over the ocean would have SATCOM. So we can reach out through the satellite phone network to our company or to air traffic control. So totally mm. different system. Um, there's radar, you know, and radar coverage is not global. Mm -hmm. Um, and we also have the aircraft sending its own telemetry data to our maintenance system or maintenance departments, um, to our dispatchers. So at any given time without radar, without radio, without our text data link, which we can always text message people on the ground, they yeah. can still see where we are. So there, there's, there's many independent systems that keep track of these aircraft even the engines themselves have a conversation with our with our team on the ground without mm. any interference or any any um, cockpit switch or, or screen uh, it they just they send their their health data so their pressures and temperatures and and, and, and you know hundreds of other um, yeah. lines of data flowing out of those aircraft back to the ground um, and and many different channels so high frequency, uh, medium and low frequency radio waves. Um, we mentioned satellites. So th it's just, it, it's hard to believe that uh, you could shut all those systems down. It's not possible, certainly in the 737, for me to turn off all those systems. Mm. Um, they, they just run automatically. It's so, I feel like you just gave so much more valuable information than <laughs> like that documentary did. Well, maybe, it, maybe. It, I mean, they were, you know, they were speculating that, you know, someone could go downstairs and start, you know, uh, yeah. you, this, this is, um, it's a definitely a more fun story to, to watch on sure. Netflix. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I enjoyed it. It was captivating. I enjoyed it. It was sure. very yeah. captivating, yeah. but yeah. for that to, to happen, um, and again, I'm not a, I'm not a systems expert. I'm yeah. a, a line pilot and, and a former union leader. Um, so I, I, I definitely have sort of the operational background, mm. um, but just sort of from a common sense, uh, perspective with, with a little bit of my professional background, I always sort of think, well, go start with the more likely scenario, mm. which is. Some kind of something happened in the South, South something China happened Sea. To the aircraft. Yeah. yeah, something happened over the ocean, and yeah. and um, that's unfortunately uh, and very sadly where the airplane mm. still is. Now, they they searched that area, and then they expanded their search based on some some telemetry data that they had from the engine. Um, all, I guess that's that's another. You you can't not search that area if you've got some some information that doesn't line up. And I think that's the confusing thing about that story is, you know, two search areas that are so far apart based mm -hmm. on some signal data. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, signal data isn't always reliable. Um, so, you know, where, where it is most of the ev evidence point, uh, unless there was something compelling, which, you know, I, I know that they did find some some parts that had washed ashore, I think in East Africa somewhere. Yeah. In Madagascar. And, yeah. Right. Um, 
but you know, one one of the pilots that I was flying with, you know, she was mentioning, yeah, but the, you know, to not have a, a data plate on it, like a, you know, to not be actually to able to say this is definitively from that triple seven, you know, it's a little bit sketch. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's definitely a stretch. So I think as a professional pilot, unfortunately it's an unsatisfying answer, but we just don't know. We don't have the, the evidence. We don't know where the wreckage is and we may never know. And it may be just one of those unsolved aviation mysteries. Yeah. So, but, but your perspective is so helpful. I feel like they, all you need to do is have some real good, pilots that they could talk to to provide that information like the way they presented a doc- documentary made it sound so speculative right like you, the way you just explained it was sounds so much more common sense and just the question around like what would it take to actually shut down those systems like you just said there are some things you as a pilot could never do right not um, certainly not on the 737 and and um definitely not on other fleet types i've flown i mean i yeah. i you know unless you're in the hangar with the the access to the aviation bay or the avionics bay, pardon me, mm-hmm. on the on the aircraft that I fly currently, the 737 Max, you, you can only access it from outside the airplane. Mm. So, and I shouldn't say that. I mean, maybe if you were start pulling up floorboards, you can get to it underneath. Yeah, yeah. But there's no hatch, and we can get yeah. down and from the flight deck uh, uh, into that into that <laughs> bay. So, some older aircrafts you could get down there, but then once mm. you're down there. You know the pilots. Pilots don't have the training to mm-hmm. to identify components, and and then mm-hmm. let alone plug in a computer or plug in some and kind of device to interfere yeah, with those. Like that's, yeah. <laughs> that is a. Uh, uh, it seems more like a Mission Impossible yeah, script yeah, than yeah. than reality. But um, yeah. you know, again, I I never say anything's impossible. Yeah, I just yeah. you know look at that and sort of say okay. We just don't know enough about what happened. Yeah. What happens after any of these kind of tragedies, um, like as far as how carriers react or um, like what's from a, from a safety standpoint, I guess, like what's sort of the response? Is there anything that sort of happens from a lessons learned standpoint across the industry? Yeah. Um, like, you know, nine 11, this, all that, like there's always something that happens I would imagine. Right. So, you know, we as pilots, it's, it's a little bit back to that conversation about just culture that we had about mm. the fit to fly, the mental health. Mm. We also have a safety system that relies on um, self-reporting. So some accidents and incidents are, you know, you, you can't cover up a, a crash or, or a, mm. a whole loss. It's, mm. it's front page news. But there's there's hundreds of, uh, hundreds of safety issues that happen every day just at Air Canada, and it could be as something as simple as you know you were doing your walk around and there was a little bit of oil or grease that was left on the tarmac that could have mm. been a slipping hazard. It could mm. be um, you know a an aircraft separation issue that led to a missed approach or a go around we call it. So mm. you know we got a little bit too close. Um, to another aircraft coming into Hawaii, you know, but a month ago, air traffic control wasn't comfortable. They said, you know, you're gaining on, on the traffic head, go ahead, um, you know, abort the landing. They say, go around for another approach. And and so mm-hmm. instead of pushing a bad position, we just went around. And mm-hmm. So all this to say that when something like that happens, uh, after I get on the ground, one of the first things I do after I've debriefed the crew and we've done our shutdown checklist is I file a, a safety report. Mm-hmm. And even though nothing bad happened, we 
uh, we're obsessed with data uh, mm. in, in the, certainly in our profession, but aviation in general runs off um, crews being constantly reporting any kind of safety issue, whether it leads to a successful landing with no issues or, you know, maybe there was an issue. Uh, certainly, we never want to run off a runway or, or go into, you know, go off on the sides or, or something much worse. Um, so if we have that, um, that large backlog of data to say, here's the number of go arounds we did last month. Here's the number of, you know, uh, separation issues, or even if you just misread, you know, you, you misunderstand a, an air traffic control clearance that nothing happened, but we mm. still, we still write up a report and say here. And so yeah. we can monitor trends. We can say, Hey, at this airport, uh, during this time of day, we're seeing more go arounds. What's, what's the, um, reason for more go arounds in Maui yeah. at three 30 in the afternoon on a Saturday. Oh, it mm. turns out that there's some extra scheduled flights coming in. Maybe they need to space out the arrivals more. Maybe they need more air traffic controllers on staff. So our safety department is its own department at Air Canada. So it's not actually part of our flight operations team. Mm. They'll look at those trends and, and, and they can work with the airports. They can work with the uh, ground handlers, with the manufacturers. Sometimes there's a technical issue with the aircraft. Um, and then our, our department flight operations also has, you know, safety folks that would work with them to maybe change our procedures. Um, maybe they'd have to adjust, you know, the way the aircraft performs in flight. Um, maybe there's some training that they can bring in. So a lot mm -hmm. of our annual training cycle. So we're in the simulator every four months, we do an annual ground school. They'll, a lot of the subjects that we train on or the scenarios that we'll do in the simulator are real world examples where they're seeing okay. a trend that, hey, here's, uh, here's something we're seeing, we'd like you guys to practice it, and maybe adjust the way that you're, you know, set flaps earlier, because we're seeing mm. certain speed anomalies on, on mm. arrival. So it's, it's a bit of a science to it. Um, and, and it's reactive. It's reactive to those trends that, yeah. that uh, are being reported by crews. But it's a constant. So it's not like you're just waiting for the next thing to you happen. You don't wait for accidents yeah, to happen. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's when you look at aviation, I think people are pretty casual about it these days, but we we have one of the best safety records of any industry. And I think it's mm -hmm. because of all of those layers, um, yeah. whether it's, the, the aircraft design, the procedures, the training that we're doing, th that safety management system we're talking a little bit about, all of those layers create a, a safe air transport system where people can sort of ride it like the bus now. They don't think twice yeah. about going for an airplane ride. Yeah, yeah. Um, recovering from the pandemic, what do you think is still uh, still at play? Like, what do you think is still, we're still feeling the effects of the recovery is going to be long and what what comes to mind for that? Well, it's, it's, it's funny because it seems like a, f a fevered recovery. It seems so quick mm -hmm. in aviation where people are just demanding to travel, like not just one trip this year, we're going to do three trips, you know, yeah. pent up demand is there. We're yeah. seeing the airports and, and airplanes full again. Um, masking was dropped. And I think that was one of the things that was a constant reminder that, Hey, you know, we, we just survived, you know, the worst pandemic in a generation, maybe mm -hmm. more. Um, so it's hard to even remember at work 
that a year ago or two years ago it was a it was like a totally different planet that we were living i feel on. the exact same way. absolutely yeah <laughs> so i i think uh, the the part that maybe i lose a little bit of sleep over is what happens on the other side of this so everybody's out you know spending their pent-up demand on on a vacation or two or three mm. um you know economists are warning us that there's there's another crisis brewing and I, you know you, you talk about the economy and you talk about capitalism on this mm -hmm. podcast um we saw what what a pandemic can do to to economic activity i worry i think you know there's a lot of stuff on the other side of this summer that you know that pilots are sort of quietly saying well it does does this increasingly um uh affect our 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 jobs and our airlines so you know war in ukraine definitely we've had to reroute a lot of our overseas routes we used to fly through mm. russia all the time now we don't mm. fly through russia anymore so if i was mm. going to india fly over the pole through uh, russia and and the various you know kazakhstan mm. um, pakistan we'd fly sort of directly south now we have to go south of russia so mm. We can't actually go directly. We have to go through London or or somewhere in Europe mm -hmm. uh, to get to uh, to get to India out of out of Canada or the West mm -hmm. Coast, anyways. Um, so that that's had a huge impact. We're burning a lot more fuel going around these war zones. Mm -hmm. um, economic activity, you know, we've heard we continue to hear that that you know there could be risk of recession depending on monetary policy and and you know. What the consumers decide to do after the summer maybe they've traveled enough and they're ready to sort of resume their normal habits uh we, do, we just don't know can't our, predict our forward, that yeah we can't predict it and yeah, and yeah. forward bookings you know i think right now the airline and I, i'm pulling this out of my hat but um they were really looking at a month or two ahead to plan their their uh you know what, what their outlook was going to be so the mm. bookings are strong a month and a half two months out but people were not willing to book a year out the way mm. they were maybe before COVID. So yeah. uh, people's people's habits are more short term now, I think, as far as travel goes. Um, and I think what's happening in the U.S., you know, so much of our market is in the U.S. We pull a lot of our traffic out of the big hubs in the United States, channel mm. them through Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal to overseas mm -hmm. destinations. So if there's unrest in the United States, um you know with this news about trump who knows what, what that happens if that's uh <laughs> sets off something down there i don't really know but if if u.s demands change um that has a huge impact on westjet and air canada yeah and probably yeah. more on us actually than westjet um how do you feel the airlines are doing when it comes to responding to climate change oh yeah i mean <laughs> well because i'm not i'm not leading the association anymore i could probably talk a little bit more openly about it you know i think um it's it's you know the canned answer is you know the airplanes are becoming more efficient the 737 certainly is is extremely efficient it only burns the the the, the fuel of an airplane you know uh three quarters or two-thirds of its size mm -hmm. so it's it's extremely efficient um it just sips fuel but it still burns, you know, we're still putting carbon into the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. that's, that's the reality is as efficient as our system is being, and as, as much as we're trying to conserve fuel and trying to lower our footprint, 
whether it's through efficient engines or um, carbon credits or some kind of, mm. you know, cap and trade kind of yeah. uh, scheme, we're still out there putting, you know, carbon into the atmosphere. We're, we're, yeah. we're burning hydrocarbons. We don't have an alternative fuel source. Um, there's some interesting technology coming. Harbor Air, I don't know if you're familiar with them no. out on the West Coast. They're a float operator. They've started to use uh, electric engines in their float, single engine float planes. Oh, okay. That's exciting. Air Canada is committed to buy, you know, 30 of these electric commuter aircraft, 19 seaters mm. that would be used on short haul routes that that's exciting, but the airplane prototype isn't even flying yet. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we're seeing that a lot with uh, these, um, these E VTOL and, and uh, these alternative power plants, there's, there's demonstrators, there's lots of exciting ideas and prototype prototypes and yep. and designs out there but we're not seeing a lot of practical examples flying around in the national airspace system so um you know it'll start probably with small aircraft um we we are seeing some fuel types that might be compatible hydrogen and biofuel certainly i was going to ask about biofuel if that's already being used in any way do you know it is yeah so we we actually do have a biofuel demonstrator on one of our airbus uh, 320 aircraft mm. um you know it's being mixed with jet fuel so it's a slow mm. transition and and the the thing with aviation is to get an aircraft or a power plant certified it takes many many cycles many hours sure. thousands yeah. hundreds of thousands of hours in some cases to sort of prove that a system is safe and and the regulations don't change overnight so to you know certify a, a new uh, power plant for these aircraft or a new fuel type it, it's it's a slow and bureau bureaucratic process. Uh, it, it doesn't happen overnight. So that's my concern with aviation in the environment is mm. the market for aviation, especially in places like India, is is it's exploding. Booming. Yeah, There's not a, a, a product out there that's really environmentally friendly, mm -hmm. um, you know, besides maybe like a train. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I say that, you know, kind yeah. of realizing that I'm, I'm, you know, I'm undercutting my own profession here a little bit by saying that. Um, but aviation, you know, is definitely has a very heavy footprint. Uh, yeah. And until we're until we're across that sort of regulatory hurdle of approving new power plants and really getting the economies of scale, like biofuel is an example, unless you're producing massive fields of this stuff, mm -hmm. um, you're not going to you're not going to appeal to that airline no. customer. There has to be the infrastructure, and and currently it's it's oil and jet fuel, um, and there's going to be uh, either a, a significant time horizon or a significant investment by governments to make it happen faster. The technology is there, like. Uh, Airbus and Boeing are, are playing with all kinds of different ways to save fuel or burn different mm -hmm. fuels, um, whether it's uh, you know, electrical power plants, biofuel, hydrogen seems to be the, the, a, a promising yeah. fuel type. And then there's other ways uh, sort of the, to reduce the footprint. One interesting one that I'd seen at a conference not too long ago was um, Airbus, I believe, is working on bringing aircraft onto each other's wingtips. So you could have five or six aircraft flying like um, 
Canada geese over the uh, Atlantic mm. on their way to, you know, they'd pair to up. To reduce the wind. That's well, we, we create vortices off our wingtips, so little corkscrews okay. that come off our wingtips as we fly. Okay. And that actually creates lift. So there's uh, automated systems that can bring these aircraft close enough to each other's wingtips. So it would be my nose to your wingtip. Yeah. And that would create a little bit of lift enough for us to save, you know, three, four five percent on our fuel burn. But over the yeah. course of the year, if we do that every time, we're going to be saving thousands tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of uh, kilograms of jet fuel. Um, so I think the answer is uh, there's technologies that exist and that can be certified, you know, long term. There's short term operational things that we can do, like taxi around the aircraft, uh, single engine on the ground, save mm. some fuel that way. Maybe there's some alternative fuels that are sort of a bridge to an, uh, you know, an electric power plant or a hydrogen power plant, but mm. it's, it's not going to be a fast solution yeah. uh, because of the regulations. So some of it's greenwashing, unfortunately. Mm. Um, some of it's real, like what Harbor Air is doing with their, mm. you know, going to a full electric fleet. And, um, and there's, there's some midterm stuff that probably hasn't even been discussed yet that, that might help drop that footprint. But, um, I think the concern that I have is just not going to happen fast enough to yeah, make yeah. the right kind of impact. And I think most climate scientists are saying, you know, we should have taken action 20 years ago. We're at another mm. inflection point right now. Uh, and if we don't do something, you know, and, and I'll say it out loud, like, you know, reducing people's um, access to flying, maybe that is one way that, that unfortunately, if you fly less, that is a way to save save uh, sort of the environmental impact. Well, and there's, and, and I will say I'm guilty of it too. Like, I mean, there's um, short haul flights are so cheap, right? Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and it's not incentivizing anymore to travel through a different way. Like it's way cheaper for me to fly from Edmonton to Vancouver than for, you know, usually every summer we take a road trip, but it's in the last year we, we flew because it was just more economical and, um, so you know, so now, that just incentivizes more flying. That's right. And, and I, what we see is you need a strong policy to move airlines in the right direction. Um, we saw during COVID, actually, the, the French government um, said, you know, we're not going to support short haul flying anymore. So if you want mm. to fly long haul, if you want, uh, you know, those, those gates at our airports, and specifically our France, I think their access to COVID funding was contingent on them um, uh, pulling out of those short haul routes mm -hmm. so that rail could uh, fill the gap. And, and and I don't have my facts 100% on this, but what I had understood was the French government said, you know, you won't be flying Paris to, uh, you know, Biritz anymore. But if you want to operate that as a rail operator, we'll give you first rights to that. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's been some, you know, Europe is seems to be ahead on climate policy. Mm. You really do need, um, you know, a, a strong policy to force airlines to do the right thing in some case, not because they're, you know, malicious, but the, the triangle, for example, for Air Canada, which is Toronto, Montreal, Ottawa, mm. it's one of the most lucrative markets in Canada. Mm. I mean, we're flying every, in some case, half hour, these gigantic airplanes, less yeah. than an hour, you know, um, or Montreal, Ottawa, I think it's like a 20 minute flight. Yeah. High speed rail, 
would they've been talking would, about that for years though high speed rail absolutely. between all the way from windsor all the way to montreal yeah. or at least ottawa anyways but i mean that that is the market that makes the most sense why it doesn't exist i think you're it, you know it's not air canada's fault that they're just they're in there making money off that market or WestJet. Um, yeah. I, I can't say that they're not in lobbying to, to keep that no, uh, course, status yeah, quo, yeah, but yeah. if you want to see a, a reduction in, in environmental impact, that would be the place to start. I mean, you can't yeah. build a rail link to Europe. We're always going to be flying over the yeah. oceans and probably between Vancouver and Toronto. Yeah. But um, policymakers do have to really be strong um, when they're looking at, you know, bringing in rail, because um, airlines aren't going to pull out if the market's there. Did you hear about the the potential hyperloop between Edmonton and Calgary? No, I, I well, I shouldn't say that. It rings a bell, but I don't know anything about it. Yeah, there's uh, there. It's a serious project. Like they're doing all the sport. I think the company's Transpod. I think it is, and yeah. uh, they're they're really serious about building a hyperloop between Calgary and Edmonton. And it essentially would be the commute, I think, would be 35 minutes or something like that. And that's absolutely because I, I, I don't I think I think normally the flight is like 45 minutes or something. That's but, right. Yeah. So, I, you know, I think that's when you look at the pressure that's on aviation right now. And again, my background is a labor leader. We're talking pilot shortage or crew shortage or worker shortage, if you can if you can see a future where there's less flying on these, these routes that can be done by rail or they can be done by a hyperloop or some kind of mm. alternative technology that's lower carbon footprint, um, potentially even faster. I mean, you, you probably don't have to show up at the hyperloop port four hours before your flight. No. I'm guessing certainly yeah. at a rail station, you're not expected to do that. Uh, that, you know, that, that is a net benefit for the passenger, yeah. for the environment, you know, um, if it feeds the airline, that's great. I think there's a lot of, uh, there's a good argument for sort of mixed modal transport. Europe does yeah. it pretty well where you can get to, you know, Charles de Gaulle on a train and get, get yeah. off right at the terminal building. Yeah. Yeah. Canada's just so big though too, right? Like you said, Vancouver, Toronto, sure. probably going to be flying for some time, right? Well, and I think these big infrastructure project projects, they've got to be compelling. And mm. we're such a small country that I think, you know, the priorities definitely are somewhere else mm -hmm. um, to build rail between, you know, uh, you know, high speed rail between Vancouver and Calgary is probably not realistic yeah, um, because the distances are so long. So we're always going to be a country that relies on, on airplanes to, to do those distances. But uh, you know, I, I hope to see more rail or, or mm. like um, more environmentally friendly on the short, the short routes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're uh, you were a former union leader. Um, what made you so interested in, in being a part of like the labor movement? So I, I was with, you know, volunteering in different roles with our association for about a decade. Um, 10 years ago, we, we had had a bit of a shakeup in the union and, and people were asking for volunteers to come and, and do some work at the time. I, you know, my background in, in the business side, I had some um, design background and a little bit of uh, sort of liberal arts training. Mm. Um, so they were looking for a magazine editor. We had had a print magazine for many years, the ACTA journal. They didn't have a team to, to produce the magazine. So um, there was a call for volunteers. 
I said, hey, I can do some writing and some design work. And they said, okay, well, you're going to be the editor in chief because we don't have anybody else. <laughs> okay. So I had a small team of a couple of volunteers and some designers and a copy editor. And we produced a, a regular, uh, it was a quarterly print magazine for the Air Canada pilots, our members to sort of keep them in touch with each other and the issues of the day, bit of a professional magazine, but also sort of the union, um, uh, definitely the union magazine. So we would do articles on the contract and, and the various issues, labor issues facing pilots. So I did that. And then I was, uh, you know, encouraged to run for office. So I, I had been a local rep and then a national rep and then mm. just finished my, my time with the association as the chairman and the, mm. the, the one of the two executives for the association. So I did all the roles. I had a good run. Um, we did, a number of contract amendments and, and negotiations over the years that I was with, mm. the, with the union. Um, and it was more just, I, I was the guy that put my hand up and just kept saying yes to mm. things. So mm. that, that, and I, I also, you know, have um, a connection to uh, organized labor. I think my wife and I both, you know, the way that we look at, um, you know, Canada and, and the reason that we have such a, um, a stable and nice place to live is because of unions in general. Mm. Um, and, and so I thought it was important to volunteer uh, while I could, um, you know, to, to do what I could for, for the association. So this, it, I think the, the benefit that I got out of it was I got to meet all kinds of inf- interesting people. I traveled the world to, you know, to meet with manufacturers, other, other mm. labor leaders, both pilot labor, labor leaders and, flight attendants and mechanics and the friendships that I made were, were actually some of the most interesting people. Um, you know, we, we constantly had interesting speakers coming through to talk to our board or the various pilot leaders globally. And, uh, just, you know, looking at the commonality, commonality between pilots around the world, uh, even though you might come from a totally different culture, um, you know, Asian pilots, um, European pilots, African pilots, mm. uh, North American pilots and South American pilots. We're all sort of bound. The profession is so homogenized as far as the way we operate and the way we look at the profession. Um, but then we could also host each other in our, in our different countries. We, we did yeah. some, I think the most memorable story I had was, was helping the Egyptian pilots. They, they had requested that we come and help them organize a union. So we all went to Cairo, spent some time with their leadership, talked about the various challenges and opportunities when you're forming a union, an mm. independent union they were looking to form for their um, Egypt Air Pilots, Egyptus, sorry, Egyptus is the name of the, mm. the syndicate there. Uh, uh, and getting to know them. Uh, and it was, you know, right after the uh, Arab Spring. So mm. Tahrir Square, uh, you know, had, had been sort of a recent memory for those folks. So they were organizing a union. They yeah. were trying to, to, you know, march and, and push sort of a, de- a democratic agenda. A lot of them were spending time with family um, because there was so much unrest and looting in the streets. Some of them would be standing guard outside of their mother's home, you wow. know, uh, yeah. one night they'd be marching in the streets the next night, and then they'd be putting on their uniform to go fly to London. <laughs> Uh, the day after that. So totally different life experience, yeah. but 
so much in common because you know we both fly the same fleet type and we know exactly you know, we can chat for hours about uh, a 787 or a triple seven uh, or the destinations that we like the most so it was a great way to um, you know recognize how small the planet is yeah when you're in those uh, kind of contract negotiations do you start to get an appreciation for the employer and their perspectives too, or like, is it, yeah. do you kind of, do you just have to separate that? I mean, I, I imagine any good negotiation, you kind of have to, right? Appreciate both sides. But like for you, um, yeah. What was that like, I guess? So my, my approach, and this is not everybody would agree with me on this, uh, but I think, you know, having met um, a lot of la labor leaders over the years, your members want you to be tough on the company mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. that is uh, the bottom line they want they want the best possible contract that that gives them the most job security and and the best wage for their work mm -hmm. um, the reality is um, any negotiation whether you're negotiating for a home or buying a car or mm -hmm. negotiating a contract for an employee group it is relationship based and that's you know not everybody would agree with me on that um, but you have to know when to push. You have to know when to give. You have mm -hmm. to know when to compromise. You have to know when to walk away. And that's that's a, an art form. And I've seen Absolutely. lots of people do it very effectively. Um, I like to think I was effective. Um, some of the deals that I did did not work out. They didn't get the membership support, but some of them were, were very well supported. So mm. um, I, I think you have to look at the problem through your members' eyes. Make sure you understand where they're at. And then mm. to get a deal, you, you have to bring that to the table and try and understand what the company's uh, issues are. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you can't find common ground, there's all kinds of tools in Canadian labor law to to get there. Um, but if you're going to get a, a good deal, I think the basic principle is you stay at the table as long as it takes to understand the other party's problems and convince them um, through those relationships, through, and again, they have to trust what you're saying and, and they mm. have to believe that you know, the problems that you're bringing to them are legitimate and that you legitimately understand their issues, then I think you can get there. Mm. Um, I think the challenge that I had with Air Canada is, is it's such a big organization. And just because I was dealing with the flight operations uh, senior leaders, uh, you know, we, we really did have to, to work hard to make sure that Air Canada Board of Directors understood our issues as well. Yeah. Um, so just because your department or even the CEO, you know, is 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 nodding and saying, "Yeah, I get it." You know, you need this thing for your your members to to see uh, a, a net gain. It's the Board of Directors that have to find a compelling argument because if it's any kind of substantive number that they're looking at in the millions usually in the tens of millions mm -hmm. um they're the ones that have to to sign off on it yeah we had currently at air canada we have a board member that's that's sort of designated as the labor uh, not representative but it's connected mm -hmm. to the labor groups um gary Dewar and it was roy romano before him so mm. so both both you know sort of notable names in canadian politics yeah yeah and uh both have been good ndp politicians right that's right yeah, um, yeah. And they were both, they've both been very good conduits as far as mm. helping the unions understand what the corporate issues are on the, at the board level. And, and also I think making sure that um, our message gets back to the boardroom table that we're not being mm. misunderstood. So yeah. that I think 
is a more progressive model. It came out of CCAA, out of bankruptcy, that we have that mm. conduit. Um, but I think any union, you know, if they have that available to them, you know, a sort of a, a board governance does not allow them to sort of be the union guy or yeah. girl, but they they are supposed to be the conduit yeah. for us. Yeah. And, it, yeah. and it works well. Uh, maybe one more question, and I'm just going to end off with our two um, questions that we asked yeah, every guest. But I'm ready. how would you how would you how would you say right now, coming out of the pandemic? I don't know if that had. An, I imagine it has some sort of influence, but the the state of labor overall. It's a pretty broad question, but how do you feel about um, the position of unions these days and in, in labor? I, I think there's a huge amount of unrest in general. I think it mm-hmm. it was uh, it was there before COVID, but it was it was certainly the the, the flames were fanned by COVID. Um, yeah. There is a labor consciousness that's emerging. Uh, I see it definitely more with the younger generation of pilots where um, expectations are not being met. I think they're looking mm-hmm. at my generation, Gen Xers and older and saying, you know, your work life looks a lot different than mine, whether it's the cost of food or housing or just the job security in general. So I think they're looking to unions to solve those problems or at least give an answer to, to their, their issues. I think there's a lot of uh, media attention on unions, which is good. Sarah Nelson in the United States, which is the, the she's been the president of, of AFA for a number mm. of years now. Um, this sort of unions are being looked at more in a positive light than ever before. So I think that's that's good for labor. I think now it's on labor leaders to deliver, which is going to be the challenge. You know, the expectations mm. are high. Um, I don't think corporate Canada is necessarily ready to open the purse strings yet. I think a mm. lot of companies are still in recovery mode. Um, but what I do know is that that corporations know the expectations have mm-hmm. have um, not risen. I think it's the expectations are are totally in line with. Um, inflation and and just people's people want to have a comfortable life they're not asking for more than what they need they just need to be able to provide for their themselves and their families so uh, i i think there's there's um you know there's going to be some unrest i don't know if you saw the WestJet pilots are ready to take a strike vote here very shortly i think there's going to be more of that kind of Mm. public um, friction between corporations and unions as, as they try and come to an agreement. Mm. Um, I'm optimistic though, that, you know, there's better contracts out there for pilots and for flight attendants and, and all of the aviation workers. Um, but again, it's, it's, it's the question is, do both parties come to the table with the same goal of let's, let's get a contract, let's have labor security, let's have labor peace or, you know, does it, does it end up becoming more of a public, um, dust up? So I, I think it's too soon to tell you. Yeah. Um, this might sound like a naive question. I don't know, but it just, it seems a very practical, like, I mean, talked about people just want to, uh, with inflationary pressures, like people just want a, a wage that kind of keeps up with inflation. Like, has there been thoughts about just tying wages to the inflation rate is that something yes. that's recept re- like received well by both the the labor side but also the employer side at all i i think you know that would be our perfect world is where we could have 
um, increases tied to uh, tied to the CPI, uh, the price yeah. index. I think you know the corporation's answer to that might be you know well as long as we can drop your wage when there's deflation. I don't think anybody any union's willing to go down that road. Um, some unions but do. That's have not, that's usually never really deflation never. Right, never I think really that happens, that's. But you know that that would be uh that would be like you said very unlikely mm. most companies um currently air canada certainly uh i think is willing to have any conversation um i don't think they're at the point yet where they're ready to sign a, a cost of living increase that's just automatically triggered mm. there might mm. be an alternative somewhere in there uh, but that's mm. just me speculating. So I think there's some hesitancy because of the kind of inflation we've just seen that to jump into uh, wage increases that were tied. If we had the conversation four years ago, no problem, or three years ago yeah. when everything's yeah. sort of falling apart. But yeah. now that we're seeing you know significant inflation, mm. companies are going to really see that as a risk. So yeah, for there's sure. always a way to get what you need, in my view. Um, start the conversation. Workers need secure they need a, a protection against this kind mm -hmm. of thing mm -hmm. um, because we can't go back and renegotiate our contract every six months when things spike yeah so I, I think it's a it's a conversation that's definitely happening already at these at these negotiating tables yeah yeah, yeah. cool um i got two questions for you if that's okay right. to, to end the show off here um our five for dinner question dead or alive who are five who are five people you would uh have a meal with so you, I mean, full disclosure, you did give me a heads up on this one. So I, I was mm. trying to, you know, I'd listened to some of your other guests mm. um, and they had, they had better guests than me. So I, I, I don't I know if that's a thing. It's not a thing. Some people <laughs> no, ask me, like some people are like, oh, my guests are not good enough, but no, no I too... had, I, I, I should say, I, I added one at the end because I, I listened to one of your other guests and he had, he had, a, he invited Jesus. And I'm like, well, that's a pretty good dinner guest. Um, so I've got, I've got my first guest would be Sully Sullenberger. This would be mm -hmm. any pilot would want to have mm -hmm. Sully over for dinner. This is someone who's, you know, a, just an amazing pilot and, and saved an air Airbus full of people. Um, that so, day what, what, Hudson. so what he did on that day, was that nothing short, but remarkable? Like, was uh, that incredible? Okay. What's incredible is that he 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 and his crew managed to get that airplane safely onto a water landing in the middle of winter, or you know, it was spring, I guess, but freezing yeah. temperatures that morning. Yeah. And yeah. everybody survived. Everybody walked off that airplane with just minor cuts and scrapes. And and then proceeds to be this great advocate for the profession and is this, you know, mm -hmm. safety expert and so if, if you're going to, God forbid, have an, an issue, a safety issue on board your aircraft, uh, and you happen to have someone like Sully as your captain, and then the profession also gets to have this amazing spokesperson, that's, mm -hmm. that's I mean, uh, the best possible outcome from a terrible uh, situation. So not so not Sully, every not every pilot could do what he, he did. Well, we, we like to think that we could because we're trained. And I think that's right. Sully's point yeah. is when you've, when you've been trained and the crew works together and you follow the procedures and you work as a, as a, a cohesive safety system, yeah, those are, those are the outcomes we expect. But mm. as a, as a pilot and the way that he's been sort of canonized with the movie and, and the interviews yeah. and 
and just his his personality is is so uh, solid that yeah he's a, he's a remarkable individual so yeah we yeah. and I'm assuming my wife and son get to have this dinner with me because I was going to say well I should dinner with my wife would be number one and then you know Sully. It's it's um, high. I, I I don't really um I don't really uh, put boundaries around this one. So it's kind of how you look at it. If you wanted to have them as sort of on the side there, that's I think cool. it's a dinner party. Yeah. So it's a dinner so party. Sully okay. would be number one. Yeah. I think uh, Jack Layton. Um, yeah. You know, just being being in the labor movement mm. and uh, having you know having seen him as a charismatic leader. I mean, we we mm. haven't seen too many of those Canadian leaders. Um, there are not to... many people. I th- there are not many people. I think who uh, that I know of, anyways, um, who wouldn't have wanted to see Jack Layton as prime minister. I think that yeah, that was one of the one a really sad point in Canadian history. I think I don't know if there's any doubt that if he would have been around for another election cycle, I, I have no doubt that he would have been prime minister. So. I, I you know I personally tend to agree. I think no matter what your political stripe was. Um, someone like Jack was a unifying character. So mm-hmm. he happened mm-hmm. to be NDP. You know, we don't talk about politics a ton at work because it can tend to be a more divisive subject. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. So- someone like Leighton, you know, he was definitely a unifier. So, I, and I think mm-hmm. anybody that's done any kind of political job, whether it's union or or you know civic politics, would look mm-hmm. at him as kind of a an interesting dinner date. So, yeah. Um, Mick Fanning would be another one happens to be a surfer. I'm also a surfer. Okay. Uh, and if you remember, he was, he was the pro surfer that got chased down by that shark a few years ago. Oh yeah. It, it think, made the, yeah. it made the headlines. Yeah. He, he really was a famous surfer within the, the professional surfing world, mm. but then really became sort of this Aussie celebrity and global celebrity after he, you know, escaped certain death. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And he's an interesting guy. He make you know, he's got a surfboard company. I happen to have one of his surfboards and he's a dad, you know, young family. Cool. So kind of an interesting character. Um, Jane McAlevey okay. is a, she's down in the U S she's a, she's written extensively about labor and she's got a great book called no shortcuts, which mm. um, a lot of the folks that supported me during my various elections, we all, had shared her books and read no shortcuts and she's got another one called a collective bargain so anybody who's in the labor world or a labor leader would likely be aware of her her writings but if you're not those are two very accessible books you don't have to be a union leader to get a lot out of them she's just basically talking about um uh you know unionism not as a a service or Mm -hmm. as a an advocacy model more as a participatory thing. So workers mm-hmm. actually being engaged in their shaping their work lives and, and some really practical ways to do that. So great writer. And then I, I was kind of torn. I, I thought, well, you know, I've already got Jack on my list, but I think um, Bob Ray would be an interesting uh, dinner mm-hmm. date as well. Um, you know, he's had a few different political stripes and, mm-hmm. and, you know, maybe not the most loved or beloved politician, mm. 
in Canadian history, but uh, interesting. <laughs> Depends guy. on where where you live, I suppose. If you're That's in Ontario, right. yeah. I mean, you might not like him so much. But yeah. <laughs> totally wasn't and the I, greatest premier. That's for sure. <laughs> no, he wasn't. But he's got he's got some interesting history behind him. And oh yeah, and, for sure. Uh, he's done a lot of different things. Yes. Um, yes. And then I was going to go in a totally different direction because I thought, okay, well, I get, you know, I I would mention my trip to Egypt, and as part of that. Um, that trip we we got hosted at the, at the pyramids of giza we actually got mm. to go inside we got a, a hosted cool. a wow. tour inside the pyramid got to go up into the the tomb and um, we were with one of the professor professors from the university of cairo and he you know he was giving us all sorts of backstory but the, the interesting thing to me is how little uh researchers know about that site and about mm the history uh, of those buildings and, and really just Egyptian culture being as old as it is. I think I would want to, cause you could say dead or alive. Right. So I want to yeah, have yeah. dinner with one of the Pharaohs. I want, mm. I'm talking like first yeah. dynasty, wow. like let's get the real goods here yeah. on, you know, what it's like to be a leader in that totally, you know, different time, but, but mm -hmm. obviously a civilization that was quite sophisticated. So so sophisticated. I, I mean, I was, uh, uh, I just learned this the other day, but, um, uh, after the pyramids, the next tallest structure that was built was the Eiffel tower. And that wasn't until the late 1800s. So if you think really? about how, yeah, if you think about how advanced Egyptian civilization was at that time, like it's incredible. That it it's, is incredible. I like, yeah. we were standing there and it was a bunch of pilots, you know, so we're all kind of engineering minds a little bit or we fancy ourselves as being able to understand things. Mm. And there's these giant stones that are the size of, you know, a bus that are mm -hmm. stacked on top of each other and mm. no fasteners. And it can't, mm -hmm. can't fathom what it would have taken to muster that kind of uh, construction project. So yeah. dinner with one of the Pharaohs, I don't know which one I would choose, but you know, um, that that would be uh that'd be pretty high on my list too that's a pretty i don't know why you're discrediting your list i have no idea it's <laughs> a good list a pretty, no, no, I, that's a good list that's a solid i'm list. i'm excited yeah. to have these uh these dinner dates so. yeah, yeah 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 i think i'm gonna have to have you back uh maybe like a, a post-election like maybe a federal election because uh, i can see that you're pretty into politics i would have i would happily come back i think um, the, the, I'm, I'm like a casual political observer, but I think, mm. you know, my, my interest definitely because of the labor, uh, the labor work that I've done, yeah. um, and, and some of the personal relationships there, I, I do watch it a little closer maybe than most. Yeah. Have your, uh, have your sister and your brother-in-law join us too. Exactly. So, yeah. No, yeah. I, I would happily uh, come back. <laughs> Yeah. Um, last question. Um, besides the circle of life, what do you know for sure? Okay. So we, um, we happen to live out in the country here in mm. on Vancouver Island in a place called Merville, which is north of Comox. And we're lucky enough to have a little bit of land and very lucky to have horses on our land. So my mm. wife works with horses. That's part of her, her work, uh, wellness work. Um, but we have three horses, Maeve, Apollo, and Sugar. And one thing I've learned from living with horses, and, and to a lesser extent, being a surfer and being out in the water, um, is, is that no matter what job you're doing or what your profession or your pursuit is, when, when you're interacting with these animals or you're interacting with a wave, you're sort of in 
nature, you realize how uh, we cannot control anything. So my, mm. the thing I know for sure is I'm not in control. I'm always reminded about that. Um, you know, when you get on a horse or you get on a wave, mm. uh, you could get hurt. You could die. Mm. <laughs> and really all you can do is, is set yourself up um, for success. So in the case of riding a horse, you know, that's the relationship that you have with the horse. Um, mm. So the way you would approach the animal, the way that you get ready to ride, you know, talking to the horse, working them out on the ground, making sure that you're in the right headspace. Because um, if you're bringing your own shit, the horse will sense it and they're <laughs> going to bolt. And if they're wound up, and I was bucked off my horse actually, not mm. just about two days ago. And it was, uh, you know, I rushed him. I got to the horse and he's an ex thoroughbred. So he's, he's tightly wound to begin with, mm. but I was a little bit stressed out. He was a little bit stressed out. I didn't spend long enough, enough with him on the ground, getting him relaxed, getting him stretched out. Yeah. Maybe his saddle was on a little bit too tight, mm. but it's all those things that, you know, you, you can prepare and you can influence, but the minute you swing your leg over that horse or in the case of surfing, the minute you start paddling down that wave, uh, you, you are along for the ride. You can influence mm. it and you can react in a certain way. Um, but I think that's that's something that I saw in, in my leadership as well as a union leader is you can prepare to ride. You can prepare to paddle out there. You can prepare for a meeting. Mm. Um, you cannot control the outcome. Uh, you can influence the outcome with the way that you react and the way that you show mm. up. But that that is uh, universal. And, and I think whether you're a flying an airliner or uh, hosting a podcast or, or, you know, working in um, a leadership role provincially or federally or whatever you're doing, mm -hmm. um, it's really how you prepare and react to situations. Absolutely. So that's my, I love uh, that. That's yeah. my for sure. <laughs> I love that. Uh, horses seem to be such energetic animals. Hey, like oh. in terms of feeding off your energy and, they, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, my wife can be. I, I've seen the horses come to the fence with their their ears perked, and my wife is you know minutes away, kilometers mm. down the road, and they can hear her coming or sense her coming. They they know if you're bringing your garbage to the table. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I wouldn't want to negotiate against a horse because they they have uh, some sensory abilities that we don't have as human beings. Yeah. Yeah. Really quickly, what's more, what's more interesting to you, space or the ocean? Oh, that, I mean, that's a whole podcast. Yeah, it is a whole podcast. I had a whole <laughs> podcast about that, but yeah. <laughs> I, I, there, I don't know what the answer is. I mean, space, space is, I have a connection because I'm up, up in the atmosphere. Just lost my headset here. I'm up in the atmosphere so much that, um, you know, we're looking up into the stars constantly. Mm. And, and we're seeing so much activity up there right now. I mean, we're seeing space launches constantly. There's almost every day now there's something launching out of Florida mm -hmm. or out of um, Asia or Europe or Japan and the activity, the satellite activity. Um, you, you see know. that, eh? Really visibly? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Cool. Because especially over the Pacific or the Atlantic, we don't get any light pollution off yeah. the cities. Yeah. Yeah. The, the sky is just full. Oh, of satellites and dream. spacecraft and, yeah. and, and I think, you know, the, the excitement is back. That's one thing that, um, you know, love them or hate them. Elon Musk has brought back this sort of wonder and excitement about 
about yeah. space. And, um, you know, I've done a lot of the work has intersected, certainly uh, down in the US, a, a lot of the leadership down at the US pilots unions had to come from the NASA mm. uh, community, uh, just kind of a random connection there. I think, you know, Alpha down in the US had had uh, one of their general managers was Lori Garver, who was a former, mm. she was deputy administrator at, at um, NASA. So she had brought a lot of her team up. And so if you wanted to talk space at uh, a union meeting with some of the American uh, leadership, they a lot of them had that background. And uh, yeah, commercial space flight is really the next frontier. And we're looking at that as professional pilots because we're looking to bring those people into our ranks as well. So yeah. I think space yeah. space is pretty interesting. Yeah, um, I'm with you. I'm with you on that one. I mean, the ocean is yeah. fascinating, but I, I'm ocean, with you on the space side. I mean, ocean is the same, similar kind of frontier, but just because we're yeah. up there looking at the stars, yeah, especially sure. flying back uh, at night from Hawaii, uh, yeah. there's lots, lots to talk about uh, when it comes to that next frontier. That's brilliant. Um, you asked me early. You asked me before we started. You're like, "How long are your your conversations?" I said, "Yeah, uh, 60, 75 minutes sort of thing." <laughs> but you know what? This is a good one. Hour forty, man. We we oh, you hung in there, I and I appreciate your time. And this was honestly, it was a fun conversation. Uh, there's so much there that I that I that I learned and got to appreciate. And uh, you just did a great job explaining things. So I'm happy to. If you're happy to come back, I'm happy I'll to have back. you. It was, it was so much it's fun. Done. So done deal. Okay, cool. Uh, we're gonna put everything in the show notes uh, so um, you get to learn a little bit more about uh, Captain Gary Russell. And uh, appreciate you, man, uh, joining the podcast today. And um, yeah, look forward to talking to you in the future. Maybe I'll come out to Comox and got to visit your your brother in law and your sister out there one day. So hundred percent, we'll put you on the Apollo's back, and I promise <laughs> you won't buck you off the first time at least. That would be fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining. Like, subscribe, all those good things, and see you next time. Take care. Bye.